Live, interactive, and here to assist you if you need help. Dealing with addiction, mental health challenges, and more. This is Road to Recovery with your host, Yona Budd, only on 640 Toronto. Hey, good evening. Welcome to the show. This is Yona Budd. You are on the Road to Recovery. Thank you for joining us this evening. We know you have other choices and we're so glad you chose us. You're in the studio tonight with myself, Natasha, and Corey, and uh, trying to do what we can to share some information and get you excited about some new uh, new stuff and uh, just get your opinions when possible on the things that we'd like to talk about here tonight. If you want to play with us here tonight, 416-870-6400 or 888-225-8255 is how you reach us, and we'd love to hear from you. It keeps Natasha on her toes. So make sure you give us a call. Say hi, Natasha. Say be nice to her and uh, share your opinions with us. How do you feel about this city under siege? By the way, I could never be prouder of Toronto cops than I am this evening. They're doing an amazing job of managing what is potentially a real mess. And uh, I give them uh, high fives and kudos and hope they stay safe out there as they're continuing to keep us safe out there. But it is a mess out, you know. It's not enough to be locked down with an illness. It's not enough to be locked down with a virus. Now we're being locked down with the protesters, people all over Canada, in Ottawa and parts of Manitoba and other parts of of Canada, where people are just uncomfortable getting out of their houses. They feel trapped and, you know, under siege, if you will, and just succumb to all of this noise and honking and horrible nonsense. And uh, fortunately... um, People have started to wake up now. They've stopped the funding pages. They're giving back most of the $10 million either to a charity, uh, a proper charity, or to people who want to get their money back. So if you're interested in getting your donation back and realize, "Uh uh-oh, really didn't want to write a check to this kind of a mess to support this, so you can get your money back. I think you have up until February 19th to make that claim. And you know what? i got to tell you, it's um, where I am right now, uh, I'm at a point where I'm trying to understand um, where we are as a people. I'm really kind of just shaking my head and trying to understand where we are as a people. You know, everybody wants to get out and get their get themselves known and, you know, speak their mind, which is great. That's the country we live in and the society that we, we've created for ourselves. But, you know what, and, you know, there, there has to be some semblance of normalcy. And it kind of leads me to my, to my next story here. Um, because I read an article, uh, it was out on January the 29th, I believe it was the Toronto Star, um, and it says Toronto's full of noise, so why crack down on kids playing in an annex playing ground, uh, playground? So what caught me is that even during this pandemic where kids are really at risk, and, and people are having a real hard time, you know, keeping their children um, engaged and outside and healthy and so on. Uh, the article goes on to say that an early pandemic evening walk drifting through South Etobicoke led this fellow Jeff Healy Park uh, near the Queensway and Park Lawn. Uh, the park is uh, tucked in alongside the west bank of the Mimico Creek. It's a beautiful little park, as a matter of fact. As we entered via the footpath from Bonnyview Drive, there was a little coyote standing on the creek bridge. But it quickly scampered off as it saw us. But for some, they're an urban nuisance. For others, it's just part of a shared ecosystem. A little farther down the path is an array of musical instruments that include a xylophone-like vibes with sticks, bongo drums, and other bell-like music makers. It was pleasant for these kids to play with them, and they're a nice homage to the park's musician namesake. Such things 
are uh, are also a nuisance to some people. Apparently, they'll will tolerate screaming and yelling and honking and crazy horns and noises in the middle of our city. But this article goes on to say that it's not such an easy thing for people to live with the beautiful sound of bells and musical instruments coming from kids playing it at a park. And over in the annex um, where the sound and the rumble of the subway uh, can be heard everywhere, this is uh, at the Joseph Burr Tyrrell Park, um, they, they have been removed. The colorful bells um, that make this noise, these beautiful noises, were removed in, they were installed in December and they were removed after the city received a complaint that children were in fact playing the bells. Like, we put them there so kids could make music in the Jeff Healy Park. It doesn't make sense to me. Um, where you we have issues where uh, over at the annex at the Joseph Burr Park, these kids were playing bells. At, at, at the Jeff Healy Park, they're able to play musical instruments and congos and drums and stuff that's built into the park. But at Joseph Burr, people are complaining that they don't like the sound of the kids playing the bells. It's remarkable easy for a handful of squeaky wheel people, right, as the article goes on to say. It's amazing how some just a small number of people can make such a big deal about such a small thing and get, the, and get action. That's remarkable. I've been working with guns and gangs folks and youth gun, guns and gangs folks for years and we're in, in the government's face, we're, we're, we're sharing stories, we're on media everywhere we can be, on our, on our show, on shows before, before me at a, in a, in a, at a different network. And we're still struggling with how to keep young people alive and keep them from killing each other. It's amazing how a handful of people in that park, live now that near that park, could affect such a massive change. The bells are reminiscent of the removal of benches at the corner of Church and Alexander Streets back in the day. The benches arrived around when the famous Steps two blocks north, the CNBC gathering spot for a couple of decades in the gay village, were bricked up by the property owner, destroying a hallowed semi-public space. They completely, uh, the completely public gathering space at Alexander saw the benches removed a few years ago, as with the bells of the annex, because people were actually using them, sitting on them, talking, hanging out. I, I, we're making bad choices, folks. We're, 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 we're complaining about all the wrong things. Uh, today, that corner is, is a place to pass through, not linger. It's, it's, it's not a place where you could sit like you used to in the old days. You know, urban noise is a real issue with real consequences. I know people that can't sleep unless they hear traffic. I know people that can't sleep unless they don't hear traffic. Noise is a big deal for lots of people. But certainly the sound of kids playing bells, and I can't imagine they're playing bells in the middle of the night, they must be playing the bells during the day. What's the big deal? Obviously a big deal enough that they had them removed. Traffic is by far the loudest problem we have in our city. Lawnmowers, leaf blowers, you know, uh, machinery in the streets doing construction overnight, um, you know, cleaning up snow, the snow removal equipment. You're going to hear it. I mean, in my condo, I hear when they come to clean the, the, the streets and to clean the, the, the space, the parking space and the walkways. And, of course, they come in the middle of the night. They're not going to come during the day when there's tons of people around. They come in the middle of the night. It's when they do their work. It's going to make noise. Okay, I can live with it. It's wintertime in the city. That's what happens. You know, look at the, at the property values that are adjacent to some of these parks. 
and look at look at the at, at, at what's happening as as they've tried to flip you know space into more communal space. That's going to be it's going to be noisy. It's going to be noisy with kids playing. Listen, outside my condo uh, where we live, there's a whole area of of, of townhomes below us, and um, there's tons of kids in the neighborhood. It's a kid friendly, animal friendly uh, neighborhood, and uh, it's part of a community. It's a close knit community that we live in here. I love hearing the kids in the morning early. Sometimes earlier than I'm ready to get out of bed, but it's really cool. Hear kids playing. Much better than not. You know, kids playing, what an incredible sound. You can hear people, excuse me, parents yelling at their kids, at their dogs. You know, doing what they can. You can hear dogs barking. You can hear, you know, basketballs dribbling in the summertime. You can hear kids being kids, teenagers being teenagers. Not a big deal. I don't understand what the problem is here. But a line between a small village and a big city somewhere exists here in Canada, somewhere in Toronto, somewhere in the GTA. And we need to understand, we need to do a better job of understanding how we're able to um, allow for the, the noise that comes from living in a community that is surrounded by kids and animals and people having fun. If you notice during the pandemic, there weren't a lot of noises outside because people weren't going outside. It's a sound of us returning to some kind of normal. Children need to be able to go to the park and yell and scream and ooh and goo and li- giggle and laugh and do what kids do. That's what we need to allow our children to do. That's what we need to be better at in this community of the GTA that we live in. And certainly bells in a park where kids can play. I can't believe somebody actually tabled that as an issue and that somewhere in, in municipal government, someone made a decision to remove it. You know, I'll tell you, the wealthy Mar- uh, Markham Enclave of Royal Yorkshire, they complained so incessantly about the North, the new um, uh, North Young subway coming that Metro Links actually changed the direction or the, where the subway stop was going to be. We can't pretend it's a city. We live in a city. We have to understand it's a city with all of its noises and all of its bells and whistles and all of the beauty that comes with living in such an incredible city as is Toronto. When we come back, we're going to join. We're going to talk about a whole bunch more stuff. Um, talk about overdose issues uh, with kids in schools. Yeah, we're talking about high school kids, uh, middle school kids. So uh, it's a real problem. So join me in a few minutes. We'll be right back. Yonabud, 640 Toronto. Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. Hey there, welcome back to the Road to Recovery. We are with me, Yona Bud. I am in the studio with Natasha and Corey. Thank you so much for joining us here on 640 Toronto. Youth overdose death renews, please for Narcan in schools. It's an article from the 24th of June of this year. Um, I wanted to, uh, for those that don't understand or don't know what Narcan is, so Narcan is is a spray or an injectable that uh, you've heard people uh, talk about for the last three or four years as the opioid uh, epidemic increases. Uh, people are um, very, uh, very, you know, very resilient if, in fact, they're given Narcan at an early point in the overdose. Um, but And we're seeing it a lot. You know, we saw it initially in the streets of uh, British Columbia, and uh, we're now seeing it uh, across this, across countries uh, all over the world. Uh, Narcan is actually the drug that is reversing the overdose when possible, not always, but when possible. Well, students at a sport and medical science academy in Hartford, Connecticut, the school has been closed since last week after a student died 
from a fentanyl overdose. And understand what we're talking about here is the fentanyl, um, the tainted drugs, all tainted by fentanyl, carfentanil and things alike. That's what's killing uh, people is the overdose effect of these very strong uh, opioids, synthetic opioids, uh, which has renewed calls for schools to carry the opioid antidote naloxone, which is Narcan, known by the brand name Narcan. As we said, the death of a 13-year-old student who apparently overdosed on fentanyl at his, Kentucky, as his Connecticut school has drawn renewed pleas for schools to stock the opioid antidote naloxone, as well as for training both staffers and children on how to recognize and respond to overdoses. I have parents, by the way, uh, in here, parents of, of kids I know, um, who keep Narcan in the house, not necessarily for their own kids, but for the fact that some of their friends, their kids' friends may show up at the house for a party or whatever, and you never know who's going to be uh, using drugs, and the potential for overdose is pretty great. So there's another seventh grader, this seventh grader, excuse me, he died on January 15th after falling ill at Hartford School uh, that didn't have the naloxone on hand. And city officials in that in that area, they vowed on Wednesday to put the antidote in all schools as a part of a wider drug use and overdose prevention program. Uh, they go on to say naloxone should be available in all schools and there should be education on signs and symptoms of overdose and how to use it, according to Dr. Craig Allen. He's the vice president of addiction services for Hartford's Healthcare's Behavioral Health Network. Unfortunately, it's a horrible incident like this happens. Uh, suddenly, it's in everybody's vision. We don't see a lot of kids overdosing in high schools and middle schools, um, thankfully, but it is, it is coming. And we were, we're talking about kids who are now not in a great place in terms of their own mental health and, as a result, looking to self-medicate. As they self-medicate, they stand a much greater chance of overdose and harm related to obtaining and using street drugs. That's why city officials are proposing more training and curriculum changes aimed at educating staffers, student, community members, and parents on prevention. Um, you know, it, there are signs that someone has a problem, and you just need to understand what some of those signs are. Uh, in response to the two students' death, there's an advocacy, advocacy group's are calling for um, naloxone to be stocked in every school, and it can be either delivered, as I said in the onset, as a nasal spray or under under the brand name Narcan, um, also can be used uh, naloxone by injection. The powerful opioid fentanyl has been showing up pretty much in everything, in marijuana, illicit pills, street pills, and substances accessible to school-aged children. According to the experts, the fatal overdoses in the United States are at record record levels, as in Canada, by the way, fueled by fentanyl and have been increasing among younger people, according to the national uh, U.S. National uh, Data Surveys. The National Association of School Nurses, uh, they're advocating for naloxone to be in schools, in all schools by 2015. Uh, it's a very unfortunate outcome, according to Linda Mendonca. Uh, she's the association president uh, about the Hartford student, the 13-year-old. It brings us back to school preparedness and response planning. Uh, the association created a toolkit for school nurses, uh, which includes information in, on uh, giving the drug, administering the drug naloxone, uh, educating the community about opioid problems. Uh, it's been downloaded. It's a, it's, a, it's a digital kit, and it's been downloaded from its website more than 49,000 times. Um, there's something in the U.S. called Ethan's Run Against Addiction. It's one of the many advocacy groups uh, that weighed in on social media about the Hartford student's death. Uh, it's named after Ethan Monson Dupas, a 25-year-old Wisconsin man uh, who died of heroin overdose in 2016. They're not dying from the heroin. They're not dying from the drug itself, the illicit drug itself. They're dying by the cut 
or by the mix of fentanyl or carfentanil into these drugs, whether it's street pills, uh, marijuana, um, opioids, and so on. It's a real tragedy, and it's unbearable, according to um, uh, people, according to this organization's um, Facebook posts. All public places, including schools, must have Narcan available. Uh, in addition, Narcan can also be given as an injection. Um, it's not clear how often overdoses happen in the uh, in U.S. schools. We don't have the, the data right now on how many people are actually dying uh, in the schools, in the school, in the schoolyards. Uh, but in late November, two school resource officers and a school nurse uh, were given naloxone after being exposed to the synthetic opioid carfentanil, which was happened to be in a little piece of paper found in a student's vape pen at Sequoia High School in Madisonville, Tennessee. So carfentanil is a hundred times stronger than fentanyl, which is a hundred times stronger than any other opioid. So imagine, uh, in, in in a kid's locker next to a vape pipe. Likelihood, if this kid was going to vape that carfentanil, he'd clearly be dead, or she would clearly be dead. 2019 high schools in Tucson, Arizona, began stocking naloxone in response to a student overdosing on opioids while in the school. Uh, Emergency responders who carry uh, the antidote revived the student media reports say there's also no national data exactly on how many schools have the drug on hand and how many don't. It's like an EpiPen, very easy to stock. It's available in in Canada uh, for free. Uh, Certainly in Ontario, you can go into any drugstore and ask for an naloxone naloxone kit, and they will give you likely the the spray if you ask for it specifically. The spray, it's free. You give them your OHIP number, your medical card number, and uh, you walk away with it. In eastern Tennessee, the Carter County Drug Prevention Group's trained hundreds of children starting at the age of six. Okay, that's where we're going, folks. We're talking to six-year-olds, seven-year-olds, eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds about drug abuse. That's that's the world we now live in. So let's get ready for it. Let's understand it and let's be prepared. How to use naloxone uh, via after-school programs. That's how they're teaching them. Uh, at extracurricular activities and gatherings. Um, so there's lots of rising uh, rising overdose numbers, according to the New York Times, in the after-school programs. 20 states have, have laws allowing schools to possess and administer naloxone, and seven others are requiring uh, schools to have naloxone use policies in place before actually having the drug on hand. In response to drug overdoses, the National Office of National uh, Drug Control Policy in November released a model uh, law for states to consider. Uh, but according to the Centers Disease Control and Prevention, the 15 to 24 age group saw the largest percentage increase in drug deaths range uh, rates from 2019 to 2020, 2020 from 2019, up 49%. It's unbelievable. For the first time last year, U.S. overdose deaths related to um, uh, opioid deaths, 100,000 last year, 100,000 People died last year as a result of opioid deaths. And with naloxone on hand, Narcan on hand, it's it's clearly preventable. It's something that we can uh, well, c- can prevent the deaths. We can't prevent necessarily the use. Um, but you know, doesn't hurt to have one in your purse. You never know when you're going to be walking out of the out of a restaurant, out of the office, out of a store. Someone could be seizing on the ground. You'll have it in your purse. You're willing to help. And, uh, yeah, you got to think about this as a safety tool in everyone's first aid kit. When we come back, we're going to talk to uh, an expert on uh, the reason that Quebec teens are hospitalized. More more of them are hospitalized for suicidal behavior in 2021 than ever before. So we'll be right back to discuss that. Yonabud, 640 Toronto. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yonabud. 
only on 640 Toronto. And good evening. Welcome back to the show. This is Jonah Budd here on Road to Recovery, 640 Toronto. More Quebec teen girls hospitalized for suicide behavior, suicidal behavior, excuse me, in 2022. The number of teenage girls who visited Quebec hospital emergency rooms after attempting to take their own lives rose by 23%. In 2022, in a report published Monday, the Institute said that for every 100,000 girls aged 15 to 19, 1,600, 1,630 visited a hospital in 2021 because of suicidal thoughts and and 227 went to a hospital because they had attempted to take their own lives more than twice the rate among any other group of uh, or, or gender for that matter. Um, Quebec said, well, girls 15 to 19 are more likely to use hospital services related to suicidal behavior. They have one of the lowest suicide rates in the province, two factors that may be related. Uh, Maybe young girls go to the hospital more quickly because their family members take care of them faster, she said in an interview, uh, according to this expert. The report also found that the number of girls aged 10 to 14, 10 to 14, who went to hospital after attempting suicide in Quebec rose from 49.2 percent, sorry, 49.2 per 100,000 in 2019 to 90.9 per 100,000 people in 2021, an increase of almost 80 percent. Joining me this evening is Dr. Brian Greenfield. He's a psychiatrist at Montreal Children's Hospital. Uh, Good evening, Dr. Greenfield. How are you? (laughs) I'm fine. And how are you doing? I'm good, and it's okay if your doggy barks in the background because we love hearing life. And uh, screaming children and dogs are beautiful. So uh, no need to hush them up. Maybe just give them a treat or something, huh? Anyway, <laughs> thanks for joining us this evening. Um, sure. Doctor, This is these, these are devastating numbers. Uh, ages 10 to 14, you know, I, I've been in practice 45 years. I'm now seeing more kids, 12-year-old, 13-year-old, 14-year-olds with um, addiction issues and all kinds of other uh, self-harm and suicidal thoughts. What's going on and what do you think we're doing wrong as a society these days? Um, I, have, I have a different perspective. Um, and my perspective is driven by years of work with the, in the emergency room with these youth. Um, there's no doubt that COVID has taken its toll on the mental health of the population, for sure. Um, and there is an equation that uh, links adversity, and adversity broadly defined as bad events like uh, divorces, sexual, physical abuses, neglect, alcoholism, drugs, and the parents, etc., with a psychiatric disorder. Um, psychiatric disorder could be um, attention deficit hyperactivity with irritability. It could be panic attacks. It could be separation anxiety. There are all kinds of disorders. Um, when you combine the adversity with the psychiatric disorder, you have a vulnerability to suicide. Um, Thank God the ratio of actual completed suicides to attempts and to suicide thoughts or ideation is a very, very small ratio. Thank God. And I see the increase in visits to emergency rooms for suicidality evaluation um, as in part a reflection of the stresses of COVID. Um, but I also see it, there's a healthy component to it. And 
uh, that's a silver lining in the cloud. And I don't think. What do you, what do you, what do you mean by that? What's the healthy component? I think society is getting healthier it, from the perspective of stigma. I think uh, we're less inclined uh, to say that suicidality is, yeah. we should be hush-hush about it, and that psychiatric disorders, we should ignore them, suppress them. I think teachers, administrators are more open to considering that these youth are suffering and they need psychiatric care. Um, or, or care from a health professional. And so they're more inclined to send them for help. And I find that very healthy. Now, I'm not wishing for our numbers in the emergency room to, to be high, um, but I am impressed that many school administrators, teachers, police, uh, social workers um, are able to identify these youth sooner now um, and have a lower threshold to send them for help. And we the, can do a lot to help them. We could do enormous uh, work to help the youth in crisis. Now, the, the under age 14 is also not a surprise to me. And um, Dr. Brett Burstyn and took the lead on an article that was submitted to um, JAMA PEDS. Actually, it was um, Holly Agostino uh, and Brett and I, who, who co-authored an article, this was in 2019, documenting a doubling in the rate of presentations to emergency rooms across the United States for suicidality from roughly 2007 to 2015. And the age group that was most represented for the increase were those who were younger. Um, under 12. And under 12, lo and behold, you see a lot more of what we call the externalizing disorders. Disorders of youth that the youth themselves are not aware of, but people around them are. And like, that like would give, give us an example of the, some of those. Um, some of those that would uh, include the attention deficit hyperactivity impulsivity disorder. Right. And that was always present in society. Um, but now we're flagging it and we're saying, hey, there's a problem here. Let's get these kids help. And what happens with the irritability, the impulsivity, is that the youth will have arguments, let's say, with their parents. And the parents very appropriately will scold them and punish them. And in so doing, the youth perceives that they're a burden to the parents and wrongfully concludes that their parents would be better off without them. Um, and that's, uh, that's too, much very, a burden, too much of a burden on their folks, too much trouble. Yes. And what we need to do is to address the original root cause, which is the irritability. Once we address that and we can heal it and we can suppress it, we can treat the kid, the irritability decreases or resolves completely. There's no more the argument, and the parent no longer punishes the child unnecessarily, and the child, their self-esteem spontaneously improves, their depression improves, and their suicidality resolves. 
What are the mo- so, what are the modality, Doctor Greenfield? What are the mod- I, you know? We're just on limited time. I'd love to just let you go on and on, but I uh, got to get some questions in here. What are the modalities um, used um, to to help young people? What, what are we talking about? Mindfulness, CBT, like what kind of what modalities are you finding that uh, seem to be uh, effective? Um, when you say mindfulness and CBT, what you're talking about are talking cures, and they're wonderful. They're a blessing because the youth have a need to explore their feelings, um, to hear about their adversity, um, to be coached in how to overcome the adversity, um, and to, to have a narrative shift, to be told, look, you're not weak and stupid. You're actually quite strong and courageous to continue going to school despite the divorce, the abuse, whatever. And that's very strong. And you find that in a verbal form of treatment. And so our first pass would be a verbal form of treatment. Now, if the distress doesn't resolve after some course of verbal therapy, perhaps a month or two, then we might consider using medication um, as, an, as an adjuvant to the therapy. And and but, but, the two of them together are very effective for most form most disorders. So the 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 the, tr- the truth be told, the majority of the patients that I see or families I speak to with the kids in my practice you know, often say that you know they they have a psychiatrist or on medication. Uh, they see the psychiatrist once through, you know once every couple of months. It's a twenty you know fifteen twenty minute uh, meeting about how the meds doing, how you feeling, and so on. Um, I know that. For the most part, uh, medical practitioners and psychiatrists, especially, and those providing that kind of frontline care, hard to find the time to um, provide these young people with an ongoing talk therapy plan to augment, to augment their, their med regime. How do, you, how do you kind of make all that work? It's, uh, it's a, a $64,000 question. Huh. Um, I, you know, we, with COVID's onslaught, Society has seen how therapists are in very short supply. And we need trained professionals out there that understand adversity and understand psychiatric disorders um, and can help heal these youth. Um, The psychiatrist, unfortunately, over the past 20 years, uh, our our role has um, been somewhat restricted to consultation and uh, to pharmacologic management using medication. Um, and a lot of times the role, the, the psychotherapy part, the verbal therapy has been delegated to non-psychiatric colleagues, which is fine. Um, I mean, if, if this is, if we can access a larger segment of the population distress using this algorithm, that's fine. Uh, but we do need the therapists. We need the therapists out there to talk with these kids. Once we do that, we can do a lot of good healing. But I think we're finding now with COVID um, revealing more and more of the, the weaker foundation that I think was always there, we're going to need more and more therapists to help heal these youth. 
I'm talking to Dr. Brian Greenfield. Unfortunately, you ran out of time. Um, doctor, you're prepared to come back again some other time? We'd love to have you on. Um, With pleasure. And, uh, yeah, and uh, let me wish you a Shavua Tov, if that means anything to anybody. That certainly <laughs> should mean some, something to you and to me. Uh, let's get through this crazy world. Thank you, my friend, for joining us. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about the overwhelming. What a great guy. Like, just sort of totally gets it. Uh, Brian Greenfield, he's a psychiatrist at Montreal Children's Hospital and I think now a new friend of our show. Uh, but uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about the former Miss USA who who didn't get the, you know, maybe didn't get the help she needed and unfortunately, uh, we believe, uh, took her own life. We're going to be right back. Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And welcome back to The Road to Recovery. You're here with Yona Bud and Natasha and Corey, and we thank you so much for joining us this evening. According to um, Dr. Greenfield, who was our guest earlier, um, we, we, we are, you know, there's some light at the end of the tunnel, which I really like to hear from a for frontline provider, such that uh, more people are reporting, which means more people are getting the help that they need. And how you do that, if you know someone who's in crisis and needs the help, you know, if someone's in, in need of help right now, you call 911 immediately uh or you can reach out to the canadian association for suicide prevention depression hurts you can talk to kids help phone they're amazing 1-800-668-6868 there's a trans lifeline for people that are you know uh, dealing with um, you know uh, mental health and issues related to their transition 877-330-6366 uh, all offer ways of getting help if you know someone who needs help those numbers will work and uh, get the help, uh, at least the immediate help uh, that's needed. And it's nice to know that the stigma is being lessened. And in fact, we're talking more about it. You know, people, uh, I get a lot of kids in my youth practice, a lot of teenagers um, who have, you know, challenges in life. Some have suicidal ideations. Some are just, you know, say, I want to kill myself and haven't really given it any thought. Uh, But many kids that I see, the ones that I do see in my practice, most of whom are very high achievers. So very, you know, high, high achievements in academics, generally involved in some kind of after-school activity, be it sports, be it, you know, school politics or some sort. Um, you know, some, many of them are part of some kind of Bible study or after-school activity related to their faith or their community. Kids on a pedestal. But here's the problem. When you're a kid on that pedestal and you're used to getting A's and A pluses and you got to come home with a B plus one day just because. Maybe your girlfriend or boyfriend or friend, you know, had a breakup, you had an argument, something happened, someone died, someone got sick, who knows? You're off that day, you only got a B plus, no one in the family seems to care. God forbid, I had kids call me and say, Yona, I want to kill myself, I got a B plus in chemistry, my father's going to kill me. You know... If I would come home with a B plus, my father would have bought me a car and a new apartment and given me all kinds of gifts and so on. I'm just kidding. But, you know, it, it, it's a question of the perception of what great really means. And we find that there's so many famous people, quote unquote, famous people, people in the limelight, in, 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 the, in, in, the, in, the, in the eye of the public and have an audience of everyone who just can't do it anymore. They just can't live with being on that pedestal, being that perfect kid, being that perfect that perfect dad, that perfect mom, sometimes that perfect employee. Sometimes it's just too much because we're all flawed, every one of us, especially me. We're all flawed. We all have issues. We all have things about us that make us something less than perfect. That's why we don't have wings. That's why we're not angels. 
if we had wings, we would be perfect. But how would you find clothes to fit if you had those wings? How would you put your arms in your coat and find a place to tuck in your wings? Kind of tongue-in-cheek. But we're not perfect. And because we're not perfect, we have to allow our kids not to be perfect. We have to allow society not to be perfect. We have to be okay with being okay sometimes. Climbing the ladder and getting to the top of it is not necessarily the answer. Former Miss USA, Chelsea Christ, brilliant girl, brilliant woman, who worked as an entertainment correspondent for the television show Extra. She was found dead after falling from a midtown Manhattan apartment building on Monday, this past Monday. She fell from the Orion condominium about 7 a.m., according to um, New York City Police Department's report. A police report, uh, police report uh, to the Reuters uh, news network uh, the be- that the death was being investigated potentially as a suicide. Chris, who won the Miss USA pageant in 2019, was 30 years old. How do you get a better personal image? How do you, you would think, how would you have a better personal image or a better body image or a better thought about yourself as a person than someone who would win a massive pageant such as that you know my wife pumpkin not really her name but we call her pumpkin for the radio pumpkin was a beauty beauty winner beauty uh, beauty contest winner back in the day and it shaped her life gave her choices and chances and opportunities this young woman christ chelsea christ she was she she was just amazing she earned an, her mba she had a law degree from wake forest university in north carolina like a real school and before entering the miss the miss usa pageant she worked as an attorney and not just an attorney like an attorney like out there getting you know getting legal little lawyer money she did it pro bono that means for free and she worked for inmates who served unjust in their minds unjust prison sentences according to the Washington Post. She is part of a group of five black women who won the five major global beauty pageants in 2019, the first ever, according to the Post. Her victory in the contest was marked by her wearing her natural free-flowing curls, if you remember back, if you're a pageant watcher. She said, I was a little bit worried and anxious about being me and about doing that, but I thought... I wanted to do it as the most real and authentic version of myself. And that's really what my hair represents, she said in an interview. After she won, Chris began working as a correspondent for the entertainment show Extra. According to the show, they say, our hearts are broken. She was not just a vital part of our show. She was a beloved part of our family and touched the entire staff, the show's producer said in a statement. How do you look back at someone who from the outside looking in has everything? She's beautiful. She's smart. She's ambitious. She's courageous. She's giving back to society. She's committed to community. Got it going on, right? From the outside looking in, got it going on. And that's the problem, my dear friends. The majority of the people that we look at and we find out about and hear about that are suffering with anxiety, depression, low self-esteem, substance abuse disorder, all kinds of difficulties, eating disorders, are on a huge rise. They look great from the outside. I have a patient in my practice, without getting into any detail, to look at this person from the outside, you'd say they've got it all. A business, a family, children, several cars, high-end cars, homes in different parts of the world. 
Got it going on. Big, big business, lots of money there. They don't understand that this person sits in the parking lot every morning before you're going into work to face their 675 employees, mostly throwing up in the parking lot because the anxiety is so high. And the work we do is in that half an hour on the way to work to help them get ready to go to class, to go, to go to work and, and do what they need to do. And not just them. There's many like them. Many, many, uh, executives over my career, wealthy, successful, you know, families, kids from those families all look like from the outside, everything is going on. It's all perfect. I'm telling you, dear friends, when it's so that perfect, there's something wrong underneath the ruffle. You know, they, they say parents that call me and talk to me about their children, they always talk to me about the kid that makes the noise, that yells the loudest, that does the screaming, punches the walls, but they never talk about the siblings, the one brother or the one sister that's always quiet. You never hear from them. They're just so peaceful and quiet in their room while all this trauma and drama is going on. Those are the ones, my friends, that we need to pay attention to. The quiet ones, the ones that don't speak up and the ones that don't punch the walls. Those are the ones we have to be careful of. Those are the ones that are likely to walk in their room one day and find that they've taken their own life without saying anything to anybody. So when you're looking at someone's life from the outside in and you you see how perfect it all is, just remember, my mother used to say, it, the grass is not really greener on the other side. Or she would say something to me using a little Yiddish. She would say, the, the translation is, it's never better in someone else's backyard. She'd always say, it's never better by Yenem. Yenem means people next door. And I got to tell you that I'm sitting here listening and reading and watching the world unfold. And like Dr. Greenfield, Greenfield excuse me, believe that we're doing better at talking about it. I'm just not sure we're doing a great job of listening as much as we should as parents, as adult educators, as frontline therapists, as just people in a community. So when your kid next door wants to come over and shovel your driveway and they look like they're, you know, want to be doing something and they want to help you take out your garbage, give them an opportunity to be good, to be special, to feel wanted and needed. Because the most of the people that want to take their lives when they look at themselves, they don't see what we see. They don't see themselves on the pedestal. They see themselves under the pedestal, wondering how they're ever going to get out from under it. When we come back, lots more stuff to do in our adult hour from 10 to 11. We'll be right back here on Road to Recovery, 640 Toronto. This is Yona Bud. Thanks for joining us. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. Welcome back and thank you for joining us. Hope you had a nice little break and uh, got what you needed to get done, done. We're on for another hour here. Get back on the bus, put your arms in, make sure you don't stick your hands out the windows and let's continue on our road to recovery. I um, spoke with my friend and colleague, Alex Pearson, this week on On Point uh, on Thursday and we were talking about the impact of the noise and the occupation in Ottawa and the impact it was having on dwellers, home dwellers, residents that live there and how it was affecting their anxiety, their mental health, their fear of leaving the home, many of whom had um, mental health issues, couldn't sleep, uh, seriously affecting how they lived. And we talked about the impact of this kind of disruption on uh, people's mental health. And uh, I want you to just have a listen, and uh, we'll be back here uh, live here in a second. Just listen to myself and Alex Pearson having a chat about the impact of uh, negative impact it's having on people's mental health in Ottawa this week and uh, some of the stuff we shared. Have a listen.
So that is the uh, sound, morning, noon, and way into the night for anyone who lives near Parliament Hill, and that's what they have to hear for hours and hours and hours. And it's easy, you know, sit back and chuckle from this side of things, but this convoy is trying to get the attention of the Prime Minister, but he's not hearing any of that noise, which is where I think the convoy has lost its fight, because those who are being hurt the most by this are the very people who, just like them, were already at a breaking point, and now they are being pushed over the edge. Yona Bud is co-founder of Clinical Director of the Farm in Stouffville and Recover at Home. Also, he's an addiction crisis therapist and host of Road to Recovery on 640 Toronto, Saturdays, 9 until 11. Good to have you. Nice to be here, Alex. Thank you. Oh, boy. So, you know, the one, you know, I don't have a problem with the protests, but, you know, I'm hearing the horns and I'm seeing a lot of people just lose it in Ottawa. And I get it because, you know, they're trying to piss off the politicians, but the people are the ones being caught in the middle of this. And and frankly, they were at the breaking point, too. I feel badly for them. The old story, you know, when you make a sales call, sometimes the salesperson has to know how to shut up and just leave it alone after they've made the sale. You know, a good, strong weekend showing in the, in, in the town would have been more than sufficient to get the message across. They've been all over, you know, it's been all over the, the, the world news, not just Canadian news. And, okay, great, now go home. Because you got a lot of people that are shut down, you know, and in a bad way. There's people that are, don't want to leave their homes. They're feeling threatened. Uh, many people who are suffering with mental health issues, sleep disorders, uh, working shifts that they have to, you know, be, be trying to sleep during the day or be up all night or vice babies, versa. Babies, older know, people. Re, re, yeah, babies. Yeah, home, yeah. yeah, home, older. Yeah, like... And, and so this is not about the people at all. Um, and I think it's selfish. I think it's uh, something that needs to be put to an end sooner than later. And a lot of people talk about feeling like a victim. And some people from other countries where they've been victimized by you know, occupation um, are having real terror issues. I had a woman call me not so you know, from Ottawa not so long ago saying that you know, she's having memories of, of being back in Sarajevo. And uh, oh, you know, she couldn't sleep and she couldn't eat. And, you know, yeah. So you know, we don't know what's behind the, the 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 drapes, so to speak, right? But this is not a good thing. There's no real uh, positive benefit. If anything, it's it's making a lot of people into haters as opposed to you know supporters. And I can't believe these folks raised six million bucks to uh, support this six. on an ongoing basis. I just obviously ten. Six, I, I don't ten. know the last way last, over. Oh, yeah, six was the last number I looked reported on. Um, but it's, um, you know, and this is a really good indication of what happens to people in communities, uh, for example, that are overrun by gang violence, overrun by unruly teens. As much as I love kids, sometimes, you know, at 2 or 3 in the morning, they just don't know when to shut up and, and go home. Um, and, and a lot of folks uh, have real issues with, um, you know, their own stuff, as we've talked about many times as it relates to the pandemic and being locked down and so on. This is another version of being locked down. Afraid to leave your home, I think, is unconscionable. Yeah, th there was um, a story out of uh, Toronto when they were building parts of the Gardener, uh, rehabilitating parts of the Gardener, where they heard this kind of sound all night long. It was like a pounding sound. And it went on for like weeks and months, and apparently people were just going nuts, like this, this droning sound. We've heard this before when they have to dig for, you know, subway building, when you've just got this constant hum. Mm -hmm. We've heard it with windmills where they get this hum, and people after a while just start to go crazy. Is there data? Um, that you have looked into as to like the cause and effect of of how it starts to kind of break people down. Uh, I don't have. I've not, I can't tell you that I've looked at data recently, but I can talk to you that you know tell you that it's it's certainly in the trauma area of things that a therapist looks at in terms of uh, you know sounds. Uh, environment is you know, a huge thing of it. A huge thing. I mean, along the Eglinton subway, uh, just in the area of Forest Hill, which you know 
mostly you know single family homes rather expensive pretty high level uh, community a lot of kids and, and a lot of surprisingly a lot of kids and, and a lot of uh, caregivers had a real issue with the pounding from the subway uh, you know dr- drilling in under mm-hmm. under Eglinton for the subway and, and and such that the government actually you know put something in place to kind of own in on the hours that were allowed. Um, so there are, there, you know, the, the data around sleep disruption or, um, you know, um, ongoing noise. We've seen it with people who live over, uh, you know, a, a, a nightclub or, or a sports bar where it's loud and, you know, there's music playing on the weekends. You know, a lot of people move away if they're, you know, for the weekend, if there's something coming into town that's close to where they live. Uh, so there's a lot of, a lot of information um, available to people who have disorders around their environment. So, you know, the data, I'm sure, would support that, um, you know, continued noise. I mean, that's why they use it in, in, in certain mm-hmm. kinds of interrogation, right? Light yeah. and sound and, you know, crazy sounds, music ongoing late at night and crazy times of the day. They make believe it's day and night. So messing with people's uh, ability to regulate their sleep uh, at times of day, day, you know, whether you can, you know, see, op- actually open your blinds and drapes and see daylight because you're, you know, you're afraid to because it's filled with protesters just outside your door um you know i was supposed to go to uh to uh, ottawa with my wife for a long weekend and, and get away and <laughs> skate on the Rido, on the Rideau, on the Rideau canal and the hotel actually sent us back a, a message saying Don't listen come. you're welcome to come but the but the restaurant's closed the gym is closed the 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 out you know the, the lounge is closed but you can get room service you can go stay in your room like seriously because it's right <laughs> you downtown can stay in your room in and listen right, to the right on, uh, yeah. yeah, and they want like a fortune of money for that privilege. But so, you know, simple person like me just being, uh, you know, just a, a nobody, you know, just being affected by something like this. Can you imagine living in what are very expensive uh, apartments and, and dwellings, uh, you know, around those neighborhoods? And uh, and honestly, kids aren't going to school. People aren't going to work. Uh, you know, a lot of the, the late night shift workers have been harassed. There's people being harassed in the streets. This is now about hooliganism. This isn't about being a protester. But there is concern, you know, Yona, here in Toronto, because the area where the protests will be is in Hospital Row. You've got a children's hospital, you've got a cancer hospital, you've got all these hospitals, and they're saying, like, this can't happen. So I don't know how they're going to deal with that, uh, but I guess it's kind of a a wait and see. I mean, but what do you do? Like, other than I'm thinking, okay, well, they could get soundproof headphones like I wear for the show, uh, but, like, really, how do you deal with that kind of noise when it's just not, it's not going to stop, I don't think, for days, if not weeks. Well, um, you know, my, my first urge would be to somebody, if, if you do have a place to go out of town where you're safe and you're comfortable, family or friend, um, maybe move out for a few days, give yourself some rest, see how it all pans out, number one. Number two, um, sound, your own sound machines. So you can create, you know, sound in your home that's more, you know, perhaps a, 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 you know, a little bit louder, but a softer sound. So using some form of music or sound. Um, you know, it's her- horrible to try to sleep with headphones on, man. Like, I don't know if you've ever done mm-hmm. it. Uh, I've tried it on an airplane, and it's no fun. Um, so, you know, it's it's just there isn't a real quick fix. Like, you know, there's, uh, you know, getting sleep is one part of it. It's, um, so many people have issues around just disrupting their, their kind of their zen, right? Their their, their quiet space, their, their, their position of comfort within themselves. And there's no real relief in situations like this because, you know, we'd like to say, well, you know, the subway is going to be built in three weeks and this is coming to an end. I think it's the uncertainty, perhaps, that is probably the most overlooming part of this process for people is they just don't know when it's going to end and they feel helpless. Um, I hope in Toronto the police and and government are smart enough to just block off 
uh, that uh, row of University Avenue, such that uh, here in Toronto, such that people uh, don't affect the hospitals. Um, but this is yeah. um, this can't then it comes be allowed up my, to Then it'll come near to my house. It'll be like then it comes up to my area. Yeah, so I, I, I gave them your address. No I gave what, them your yeah, address. Well, actually, we will all hear it. And there you have it. That's the conversation Alex and I had. And uh, apologize for the fading in and out. Not, what, not sure what happened in the edit. Uh, but when we come back, uh, we're going to talk to uh, an expert here on um, dealing with the homeless and why uh, homeless people are refusing actually to come in from the cold. So when you come back from break, that's what we're talking about. This is Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. Welcome back. This is Yona Bud here at 640 Toronto. Thank you for joining us on Road to Recovery. We appreciate you being here and uh, hanging out with us tonight. It's about 1018, 1019, maybe, maybe closer to 1020. Do you know where your children are, your loved ones, your animals, perhaps? It's uh, pretty cold out there. You might want to know where they are. And if not, call 911 if you think they're in trouble. If you need to get a hold of me at any point through the week and just want to say hi or uh, share some information or get some advice and see what I can do to help, 877-777-5808, or you can send an email to roadtorecovery at 640toronto.com. Love to hear from you. Any suggestions for shows, any ideas that you'd like me to bring up, any information you'd like me to share, send us a message. We'd be glad to introduce your topic to our audience. You know, there was a time as a kid uh, when I first broke my teeth in uh, coming out as a, as an addiction counselor and a crisis worker, social worker, and um, it was uh, way back in the day, decades ago. And, you know, I was working for then what was called the Addiction Research Foundation. It's now all part of CAMH. Uh, Addiction Research Foundation was an offshoot of the Clark Institute of Psychiatry. They shared uh, build, one building was behind the other at the corner of College and Spadina. And, you know, we, uh, we, we embarked on a program to try to bring medicine to those that were not coming in from the cold, not coming in from the street. And at the same time, I was working also for Street Haven at the Crossroads, which is and was a um, facility for women in trouble, those that had uh, issues with the law or uh, in, in abusive situations. It was a shelter, a place that they could live, and uh, I worked for them as well for a number of years. So between the two organizations, we did a lot of street work. And I can tell you how many times, I can't tell you how many times, I met people in the park late at night, you know, on a winter, cold winter night or, you know, hot summer evening, talking to people who were exceptionally educated. I remember having a conversation with one fellow who was a university professor and just ran, you know, just his anxiety and his mental health got the worst of him and started drinking and, you know, loved living on the street. It gave him freedom. Gave them, you know, gave him a purpose. He had the ability to control his own life by where he could be. I mean, obviously, he had issues around paranoia and so on, which kept him from wanting to be next to people in a shelter, in a home. You know, and there were so many times, especially when I was young and starting out, where I wanted to kind of take them all home or buy them a hotel room, and people would refuse. They were quite content to be where they were. This one guy, one guy, um, uh, his he uh, his home is a pile of rubble beside some busy street. He's got reddish hair and a beard and scraggly and his coat ripped and ragged. At night, he burrows under the dirty sleeping bags to try and escape from the frigid temperatures. He's been here for more than a year, according to the article, and um, is well known to police and social service agencies in Hamilton. Uh, and they check on him regularly. Like, this is a fellow who they check on regularly. So much to their frustration, he refuses to go to a shelter. 
And you know what? There's nothing they can do. You can't force someone to go to shelter. So far, he's been kept alive by the goodwill of the people in the community. They drop off food and clothes and hand warmers for him and, you know, kind of look after him on the street. And there's people here in Toronto that are regulars in particular neighborhoods who also have the benefit of the fortunes of uh, those that bring them stuff and and help them. Um, You know, I have a friend of mine who offered to pay a year's rent for someone and their animal, their dog, uh, that he met on a corner street, and uh, they refused. They thanked him very much. My friend gave them $100 to do whatever they were going to do with it, and he went on his way and called me and said, I can't believe it. I offered to, to get, get this guy an apartment and a place that would take him and his dog because that was the issue. He couldn't take his dog to shelters. So a lot of these people have therapy pets, not actually defined as therapy pets, but therapy pets. And if they go to a shelter, in a lot of cases, they can't take their pets with them. Now, there are some shelters that will take children and and pets, but not lots, not many. Frankly, there's not many to begin with. So when this, when we were, when this, the author of this article tried to, you know, nudge this guy, this beautiful man with the red hair and beard, he returned and looked at them and she, he said, I'm busy. Don't bother me. He said in a thick Russian accent. When he was asked if she could, if they could help them along to get to a shelter. Many overcrowded shelters are like petri dishes, though. Once Omicron hit, it spread through them like crazy. Last week in Toronto, there were 50 shelters in outbreak mode. So homeless people are not, you know, they're not lacking cognitive behavior, uh, cognitive ability for the most part. They don't want to be in a situation and get sick. Last thing a homeless person wants to do is get sick and end up in a hospital and lose their freedoms. There's something about being outside. There's something about being free. There's something about being able to move wherever you want. There's something about not having a landlord to worry about. There's something about the fear of not making rent payments every month that help people with their anxiety, I suppose. There's lots of reasons why people choose not to come in from the cold, so to speak. It's especially true amongst a group of homeless people who have a mental illness, right, which includes up to about 67% of that population, according to the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Uh, it's known as chronically homeless. That's the, 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 those are the people that we're talking about. They've been on the streets the longest and they suffer generally from a series of mental health issues that are generally quite serious and usually some form of substance use disorder. Certainly many have a physical disability. While the chronically homeless only make up maybe 20% of the homeless population, depends on the city you're looking at and the data and so on. But because of their heavy reliance on costly services such as those emergency departments and so on, they use up more than half of the resources. So more than a half of the resources are used up by a small percentage of homeless people who are chronically homeless because they get their mental health, they get their mental health and, and health care through emergency services. They're constantly interacting with police, usually for their own benefit, not because they're causing problems, making sure that they get off the street, making sure that if they're not healthy, they get to a hospital. And some often stay in a hospital could be a number of days. I know lots of homeless people who often get themselves arrested during the winter time. As much as jail isn't a place to go, it doesn't cost anything. You don't have a landlord to deal with. And if you've been there often enough, you know how to make it work, especially if you only know you're going to be there for a number of a few days because vagrants isn't usually something you can hold you for. There's a process to involuntary committal, though, for a homeless person who might be at risk of hurting themselves or others, specifically at risk of hurting themselves. According to Dr. Tim O'Shea, she's an infectious disease specialist in Hamilton. 
It not, but it, it requ- not only requires them to determine, the hospital to determine that a person is at risk because they said to them health or others, but it requires them to determine that the person's mental health diagnosis is such that they belong in a controlled environment because that's what going to a mental health facility is. It's a controlled environment. But even if they imagine to get them admit, manage to get them admitted, the maximum you can hold someone for unless they agree to be there for the most part unless, of course, they try to hurt themselves or act out well, you know, during the hold, is 72 hours. You get 72 hours. I do this. I see this and deal with this all the time, my friends, all the time, with families, with young people, with parents of children, teenagers who are in crisis. We finally get them into hospital. We finally get police involvement. We finally get them to emerge. And 72 hours, if that long. I've had kids who were suicidal at home talked about it, had a plan and all that stuff, and get to the hospital and get and meet with the um, eMERGE crisis team and know how to answer the questions exactly so, they come home the same night. There's ways to mess with the system for sure because there's a series of questions. You can't determine someone's ability or inability to hurt themselves with a short-term crisis-type intervention-based interview. We need an immediate immediate redesigning of the shelter system to make this work because we need to be more open to alternative housing solutions like little tiny homes for each individual instead of putting them in a large in a large um, community structure you know creating environments where people can put up a tent or put up something safe that works you know there's we need to think outside the box with creative options like these small we've seen them all over the place in other parts of the world, these little portable solar-powered sleeping pods, which are have been populated in um, in the cities in Germany, for example, it's time to consider looking at the parks and looking at some open areas as potential homes for people who don't want to be in a shelter or in an indoor environment. Putting up maybe some of those army tents that we saw. I keep talking about the army tents. They certainly came out really quickly when we wanted to make sure that we segregated people who were sick and people who weren't when we first saw COVID uh, hit our uh, community. It's not a one-size-fits-all shelter system. It's not going to work for everybody. And if we want to get people, vulnerable people, off the street and get them into a safe place, we need to create a place that they feel safe, not one that we determine is a safe place. Because putting a whole bunch of people in a room with a bunch of cots and access to a small number of bathrooms invites all kinds of abuse, physical, sexual, mental, emotional, psychological. We need to segregate. We need to separate, segregate, and give people some, some, some feeling of, of um, respect, some integrity in their, in, their, in, their, uh, in their presence, giving them the ability to stay somewhere where actually they feel pretty good about themselves as opposed to locked in like a bunch of sardines just to get in from the cold. They'd rather be in the cold. They can make it work in a bank lobby outside a bank machine somewhere or over a, a heating grate coming up from the TTC or however many of these people with chronic homelessness, how they deal with it. And they do. They deal with it. Many don't do so well. Others do much better. So I think we need to do a much better job. Bring back those tents. Bring you know, look at shell. Look at forms of of things like you know, using uh, um, trailers, tractor trailers, and uh, the trailers from uh, you know that that we're able to repurpose. People are making beautiful homes and cottages and you know backyard dwellings out of these shell out of these containers. These containers could easily be put in you know cut into two or three pods, or a couple of people in a pod, sharing a bathroom, an outside bathroom. 
You know, there's all kinds of choices here. We're just not doing a good enough job. So if we're worried about why these people are coming in from the cold, mainly because they don't want to, and frankly, because they don't have to. So hopefully we can do a better job, give them things and entice them a little bit more and help them get in from the cold. So number one, they're healthy. And number two, it makes us feel better somehow because we don't have to look at it, as sad as that is. We'll be right back as soon as we uh, take a little break here. Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And welcome back. Thank you for joining us this evening. This is Yoni here on the Road to Recovery and 640 Toronto. We thank you so much for joining us. And we know you have lots of other choices, and we're so glad you chose us. Thank you for coming to our party versus the kid next door. You know, addiction consults reduce the death in patients with substance use disorder. Addiction medicine uh, consults in a hospital reduce the deaths um, in patients that have substance use disorder. And what I'm talking about is a, a program in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, According to the University of Pittsburgh, um, it's an article that came out on the 25th of uh, January, uh, part of a um, group I belong to, of addiction counselors around the world. Anyway, this was published in our our monthly stuff. Um, in a hospital, addiction medicine consult- consultations can reduce deaths in high-risk patients with substance use disorder, according to a new study published by and in the Journal of uh, of General Internal Medicine by the University of Pittsburgh, uh, a group of physicians. The research is among the first of its kind to show that these consults are life-saving. So it starts to make sense, right? Someone comes in to emerge, they see a doctor, they see a nurse practitioner, they see a crisis team. And if, you know, in in these days in particular, when we're dealing with patients who are at high risk that have substance abuse disorder, bringing in someone who specializes in addiction medicine is something new. Hard to believe, right? It's something new. Anyway, um, we know that patients who die from overdoses frequently come into contact with the health system. In the past, we've often ignored the substance use withdrawal or failed to link patients to any substance use treatment during hospitalizations. And that's what I've been saying for a long time. We do have opportunities when patients do show and present with some form of substance abuse disorder. I tell patients all the time that call me from the street and say, Yona, uh, I'm in a bad way. I've done this. I've done that. Um, I, you know, I've just overdosed or whatever. I feel like I'm going to, you know, my life is this and my life is that. The first thing I say is, you know, if I, if, is get to your closest emerge. And then often they'll sit and wait for eight, nine, 10 hours, sometimes seven hours, six hours, and they get sent home. And I, and I'll say, did you tell me you wanted to quit drinking? Yes. Did they give you any benzodiazepines for three or four days to help with the withdrawal? And they would say no. So if someone presents with alcohol use disorder and they say, I really want to quit, because I tell them, go in and tell them, I want to stop using drugs. I want to stop using alcohol. I, I want to feel better. I want to get past this anxiety. I need help. These days, they'll just, you know, if you walk in and you're a little high and a little drunk, they'll settle you down for a little bit, make sure that you're okay physically and send you home. Missing a huge opportunity. While the study included more than 700 high-risk patients who were admitted to the hospital and were diagnosed with either alcohol or opioid use disorder. And the patients received an addiction medicine consultation, and that addiction med consultation connected them to outpatient treatment programs, including different forms of meditation. That's the time to help someone get on methadone or suboxone for a period of time, some form of opioid um, support uh, antagonist, if you will. Uh, it's also providing an opportunity to speak about their substance abuse and their use in a compassionate way. 
in a non-stigmatizing environment by trained members of an addiction medicine team. So the researchers found that among patients with opioid and alcohol use disorder, exposure to the addiction medicine consult team led to a significantly reduced risk of death within three months of discharge from the hospital. So they followed the patient who was at high risk coming in. They provided the addiction medicine consult while in um, healthcare in the facility and then tracked them for three months after and found that it's significant difference in the outcome, less people dying. So uh, they, it's, actually medication likely played a bigger role perhaps in reducing that risk because often someone who is going through alcohol withdrawal, it's a horrible experience, I'm told, I've seen, I've watched, I've been a part of. And, you know, what the solution is help somebody get comfortable through the three or four or five or six days it takes, maybe a week, <clears throat> to actually get through alcohol withdrawal. Actually, alcohol withdrawal is right up there with um, with opioid withdrawal, uh, methamphetamine, um, you know, all kinds of, uh, of different types of, uh, um, you know, street drugs, speedy drugs. You know, so, some of them are much harder to come off of. Like methamphetamine is very difficult. Crack cocaine is very difficult. Uh, powdered cocaine, very easy. Um, marijuana, not lasting very long at all. Uh, but, you know, alcohol is right up there, like number one, number two of things that are difficult to get out of your system. So a lot of patients, I ask that they see their doctor and see if they can get a prescription for um, cannabis, right, CBD, which is the, the good side of the cannabis, the medical side, and THC, which is the, 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 uh, the part that is a bit of a hallucinogenic, makes the part that gets you high. So some combination of CBD and THC during a month or during a week or two of withdrawal seems to be very effective. If that's not effective, things like benzodiazepines, you know, Valium, things like that. Clazepam, diazepam, you know, all the pan sisters, right? Um, so that that if you get medical support around withdrawal, you'll keep going. If you don't get medical support around withdrawal, most people don't have the parts it takes to sit through the ugly and deal with their own withdrawal. But I'll tell you, if you end up being incarcerated for some reason or pulled off the street for some drug-related offense, you're withdrawing in a, in a prison system without any support. I know I, dig- I digress a little bit. But anyway, having a hospital-based addiction medicine consult team is, at, 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 is a hospital-level intervention definitely saves lives. It included 700 high-risk patients who were admitted to hospital and were diagnosed, and, the, and, the, and their ability to do well was unbelievable. Research, researchers found that among the patients with this disorder, exposure to the medicine reduced their, their, their risk, as I said, and it, it played a huge role in improved mortality, the study goes on to say. And we talk, they're talking more in the study about, about thinking outside the box solutions to support people with substance abuse disorder. Right. In the old days, you know, we would bring methadone and such, you know, out to the street. We would bring different forms of alcohol, um, antagonists, you know, there were drugs used to help people stop, uh, needing and desiring and feeling good around the use of alcohol. We take it to the street. We took it out to them. Thinking outside the box solutions to support people with substance use disorders become ever more urgent as this pandemic drags on. We need to meet patients where they are and have conversations with them in a non-stigmatizing way in an environment where they're comfortable and feel safe. Addiction medicine consult teams deliver, this delivery model can be adapted to any healthcare system. There's lots of addiction medicine specialists. There's not doctors in particular. There's a very few, few of those. And by the way, that's a specialty unto itself. You need certain uh, designations to be actually an addiction medicine uh, provider, uh, practitioner. 
But there's a lot of nurse practitioners. There's a lot of addiction counselors. There's a lot of people out there that are peer support workers. There's a lot of people out there that could be attached to a hospital intake program or be on a, be on a beeper and get called in. So, you know, you have to wait a half an hour for the consult or an hour for the consult. No biggie, right? Someone on call. I'd be willing to sign up for a weekend here or there. Certainly if anybody asked me, it's a great idea. We need to understand what these patients need and what they need is to be talked to and worked with and supported when they come in presenting in a way that says, Hey, I'm here. I need help. I'm looking for help. I've had enough. It's a down period for them. When people are suffering, they, they, they come in often for help during a period of, of, you know, people talk about rock bottom. It's a down period for them. That's the time to catch them and hold them and squeeze them really tight in a way that helps them and helps them get the help that they need and introduces them to the help that they need and makes a connection with someone who can help them and guide them and not make them feel horrible about who they are or try to rush them through a very busy emergency room. And I get it. I get it. We do the best job we can with what we got. But there's a way to avoid losing as many lives as we are. Remember, 100,000 people last year in the United States died from opioid use disorder. Who knows how many died from alcohol use disorder? How many in this country? I'm sure there's numbers. But do we really need to add up the numbers? All we know, it's a lot. It's a big number, and more than one is too many. When we come back, I'm going to share some stuff with you here, folks. We're going to talk about some resiliency skills. We're going to talk about the ability to become a little more resilient in the world that we live in. I'm going to give you nine tips on how to preserve, how to be perseverant, how to be, excuse me, how to, uh, uh, how to get through these difficult times. These are the qualities of champions and people that are a success. It's all about perseverance, and that's what we're talking about when we come back. Yonabud, 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. Hey there, welcome back. Thank you for joining us. You are the best audience ever, and I don't get a chance to tell you. I want to tell you that I love you guys, and you uh, just uh, make my evening, and I hope we're able to do the same for you. It's great to share. Love to hear from you a little bit more. 416-870-6400. You need to write that down for the future and give us a call. And if you're outside of our area... 888-225-8255. In this virtual world, there is no outside. Yona can find you anywhere. I will come to your house, knock on the door and say, hey, it's me. Let's chat. Not really, but sort of. Anyway, perseverance is a quality that creates winners. It's determining to keep going despite facing obstacles. So what is perseverance, actually? It's determining to keep on going in the face of setbacks and challenges. It's the inner drive that keeps you in the game. When everything else says, it's time to give it up, you got to quit. You know, it's that good one and the bad one on your shoulder, the one that's, you know, dressed in one outfit and the one that's dressed in the other. I like to say the white outfit, the black outfit, or the, the red one, the green one, whatever, the two different colors. And it's those people, that inner self-talk, right? That's the drive inside you that says, yeah, we can do this, or oh, I don't think so. I'm not going to do this. I'm going back home. It's resolving to put one foot after another when the finish line is nowhere in sight. You just got to keep going. It's like stormy day where you just ever been in a snowstorm or a rainstorm and you're stuck between place and place and you got to keep just put your head down, cover yourself up the best you can and somehow get through it because you know once you get there, you're going to be clean and dry. Maybe get something good to eat and something warm to drink. It's staying power to follow through and exert effort 
till you actually get to your goals, till you actually see your dreams and visions come true. Practicing perseverance. Most, for most people, the typical journey to achieving success spans over many years, sometimes decades. I've been at this game for a long time. I'm still learning. I'm still doing. I'm still trying to keep my head down and stick my my feet one foot after another to try to keep going. Because I'll tell you, my friends, I love doing what I do. And it's amazing to help and save lives and do that. But we shake our heads from time to time because it's just getting uglier and patients are getting younger and the situations are getting darker. But I have perseverance. I keep my head down and I keep one foot after another and I just keep going. You know, they shut down the studios. They shut down offices. We learned how to do things virtually. We found ourselves a virtual medical app, started connecting our patients through that. And here we are two years later seeing hundreds of people saving all kinds of lives. So it's the keep going part. It's the keep going because we have to determine that it makes a difference in our lives and the lives of others. We keep going because we have a purpose. How do you keep going walking in the desert when you're thirsty and there's no water in sight? Somehow people manage They somehow endure hardships and challenges and failures and actually come out the other side stronger. I know you've heard it before and it sounds like a bunch of crap, but no. Should you be the one quitting when others are quitting? Should you quit if you're not achieving your goals fast enough? These are questions to ask yourself. Should you quit when you face obstacles? The answer to all of these is no. Should you quit when no one believes in your dreams? Should you quit when you doubt yourself? No. If you don't don't believe in your dreams... No one's going to believe in your dreams. And if people don't believe in your dreams, it doesn't mean that they can see your vision. And sometimes it's important that we follow our dreams and our visions just because it's the right thing to do for us. You don't have to doubt yourself. It's not going to be, you know, a vision vision of of a path has to include bumps and humps along the road. You have to pack the extra lunch and the dry clothes and maybe a gas can for you never know what's going to happen along the ride. Having a clear vision, there are very few oversights. And very few overnight, excuse me, very few overnight successes. And that's an oversight for most people. Can't read my own writing. You have to do the work, man. You got to pee and put the time in. You got to go the distance. When I first learned how to box, when I was a little kid, I never got even, I never got to put boxing gloves on for almost a year and a half. I kept wanting to, but all I did was get stuck in front of a mirror, shadow boxing and hitting a heavy bag and learning how to use the speed bag and learning how to skip and punching and looking at myself in the mirror. Week after week after week after week after week until it was time to put gloves on. And of course, I did so horribly and got knocked down immediately. But I kept getting back up and keep going. And, you know, I was pretty good at it after a while. You have to have a clear vision. It doesn't take time. It, take, it does take time. Your hunger for success should push you and drive you forward, not set you back. You got to want it more than anything. People that call me and say, I really want to get help. I really want to get past my addiction issues, my mental health issues. And I tell them, you got to crawl. You got to be prepared to crawl across broken glass to get the help that you need. Are you? Are you prepared to put the same time and energy and wear your shoes and socks in the snow like you would to go out and get high, to, to, to meet a dealer halfway across the city, taking six buses and a subway to try to spend 50 bucks for that 20 minute high? Can you put that same energy into reaching your vision and your dream of doing well? If the answer is yes, I'm your guy. If the answer is no, you need to call somebody else right now until you're really ready. And when you're ready, let's rock and roll. Just like when you set out on a road trip, you need to chart out your in your mind at least some mental map, some GPS on how you know you're going to get there. And then how do you handle the setbacks when they happen? You know how? You keep pushing. Excuse me. You learn from them. You keep pushing. And you enjoy the process of working through it. You got to enjoy 
the downtimes as much as the uptimes. You got to see them as opportunities. The more you get knocked down, the more you pick yourself up. That's how you become resilient. That's how you you learn to persevere. It makes you a better person. Success has challenges and setbacks all along the way. Most super wealthy people, if that's your measure of success that I know, had setbacks at least once or twice in business. Maybe one bankruptcy or two. Have lost a business or two. Who knows? Large, large amounts of money lost and gained. But at the end of the day, those that bounce back are the ones that do well. On the other hand, to avoid getting overwhelmed by setbacks, it pays on a regular basis to take care of yourself. It contributes to your ability to be perseverant, to be able to preserve, to keep going, right? To persevere. You got to eat well, stay hydrated, exercise, lots of sleep, good sleep. That puts you in a better mindset to deal with your challenges as you progress and go forward. Cultivating a supportive uh, network, friends, people that can be there to support you, have a trusted confidant to talk to, open up to, and share your feelings with. Surround yourself with a network of supporters, people that are there, family, colleagues, people in your in your office if you need that kind of support. Whenever you feel overwhelmed and anxious by how much work there's still and how much time it's going to take to get to the big picture, just enjoy the one day at a time, so to speak. That mindfulness moment of checking off in your box the successes you've made that day. Not what's going to be three months from now. That's a vision. That's a dream. That's a, a plot on a map. But right now it's foot over foot, step over step. You got to encourage yourself. The second worst offender to progress is negative thoughts, negative self-talk, we say. It's a cancer to that process. It causes many people to quit prematurely before they actually even face any disappointments or setbacks. We have a great job of being able to sell ourselves on the fact we're never going to make it. You know what? That same energy, that same sales pitch can be turned around. And you can sell yourself on your ability to be successful. I think I can do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to keep keep going until I get to where I need to get to. It doesn't matter what happens along the way. You have to be prepared to deal with this, you know, discouragement. There are going to be things along the way, obstacles, things that you know get in the way. You have to be able to find your inspiration by closing your eyes and seeing what that vision portfolio looks like. What do those images look like? What does it look like when you get to where you're going to? What does it physically look like? Can you feel and smell the air? Can you smell and feel the, the, the leaves around you if it's that or the sand under your feet if that's part of your vision or the success of sitting behind a fancy desk in a big office staring out the window overlooking the city from your successful business operation? you got to plan and prepare the best you can. And by the way, when you plan and prepare, you've also got to set yourself up for a plan B. You've always got to give yourself an out, something else to do if it doesn't work out. Okay, so if this guy doesn't want to talk to me, I'm going to talk to this guy. If this person doesn't want to buy my products, I'm going to try to talk to this person. If this person can't help me online, I'm going to find them not talk to you. You're having an alternative along the way. There's always another road. Whenever Duncan and I go on a road trip, there's an A road and a B road. So the one is, you know, usually the one we take is the most scenic. But if we're in a hurry, we got to get somewhere quickly. We find ourselves to the one that's quicker, more expedient, and usually less pretty, you know, not as nice a drive. And the lessons that you learn from perseverance, Key lessons to learn from perseverance and handling setbacks include challenges make you stronger. You need to understand, and they strengthen your ability to face and conquer more adversity in the future. You become more confident from overcoming your difficulties and your adversities. You learn from your mistakes by analyzing what went wrong and reassessing your tactics and trying again. That's what this is all about. That's how we operate. That's how we do better. You identify new ways to tackle tasks. You accomplish more tasks with a renewed vision. 
and a renewed plan. And a few perseverance quotes that you've heard from experts, I'm sure, or, you know, Emerson here, Ralph Waldo Emerson, our greatest glory is not never failing, but in rising up every morning, the time that we fail. Every time that we fall, we should pick ourselves up. Patience and perseverance have a magical effect before which difficulties disappear and obstacles vanish, according to John Quincy Adams. And Thomas Edison, what did he say? Many of life's failures are people who did not realize how close they were to success when they gave up inches away from seeing their success. Ladies and gentlemen, you're the best audience ever. Remember, hug each other, love each other, be kind to one another, spread nice, and we'll see you again next week. Thank you for joining me on the Road to Recovery here on Global News Radio Toronto. I'm Yonabad. Have a great week.